Hello and welcome to Loving God Through Loving Neighbor, a special six-part class from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thank you for joining us. Let's listen in. All right, we'll get started. So today's our first day of going through specific religious traditions. So today we'll do the Muslim tradition, next class. Sorry, I accidentally kicked this out. Kick it back. Um, next class we'll do the Hindu tradition, and then the last class, Buddhist tradition. So Muslim tradition today, Hindu tradition, Buddhist tradition. Um, and they'll kind of follow the same format we'll go through. Um, but again, these are going to be very, very, very cursory, broad, speedy summaries <laughs> to just throw out ideas and just kind of give you some basic concepts. Um, of course, you could teach whole classes and people get entire doctorate degrees on that. So the depth of this is endless. So in no way, in no shape or any form, is this a sufficient summary of any of these traditions. Rather, it is my intention is to give you some ideas and concepts that you can hang your hat on so that when you meet somebody, meet someone who's a Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist, you go, oh, I, I understand that. That fits. I see this. And just give you a little kind of idea. So that's kind of the goal for today. Um, so let me pray, and we'll start. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together this evening again. We thank you for our Muslim brothers and sisters. We thank you for the beauty of their tradition. We thank you for the opportunity to learn about this tradition and to learn more about you and the glory of your creation and to better show how we can live as followers of Jesus and with our Muslim neighbors. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Okay, so four goals for today. So first, just to have a better understanding of Muslims and Islam. So uh, just basic terminology, a person who follows Islam is a Muslim. Islam is the religious tradition. Um, the adjective is Islamic. So something can be Islamic. It's not necessarily done by a Muslim. So for example, Islamic art is a style of art that comes out of the Muslim tradition, but you don't have to be a Muslim to do Islamic art. It's just art that comes out of the tradition. Or um, in the field of philosophy, there's Islamic philosophy, Islamic poetry. These things are not particularly done by Muslims. They don't have to be done by Muslims. So a Muslim is a person who follows Islam. Islam is a religious tradition. Islamic is the adjective that describes things that come out of the Islamic tradition writ large. But second, our hope is, my hope is that by understanding another religious tradition, we can better understand the gospel. So it is understanding how to be a better follower of Jesus because of other religious traditions, not despite other religious traditions. Third, to reveal where we, like, in our culture, we tend to conflate the ideas of like religion, culture, politics, etc. And so be able to understand like when we're talking about the religious tradition itself, and then when we're talking about politics or economics or other ideas. So better, just so that we don't stereotype, essentially. So help us not stereotype or have these kind of grand ideas based upon one um, Muslim group, community, or person that we know. 
Um, and lastly, to help us understand how we can build better relationships amidst diversity. So, four goals. The class today will kind of be three quarters the Muslim tradition and then one quarter reflection back through the Christian tradition. Um, after I, I wrote this at the beginning, at the end, it's more like five-sixths the Muslim tradition and one-sixth the Christian tradition. So I just started going, it's like, there's so much information. Um, so we'll see. But we'll have time to reflect, and especially for questions. Like, the question's time, really. I'm hoping to, to do a lot of reflection. Okay, the Muslim tradition. So I'm going to have little slides. We'll have the intro slide, and then kind of go in. I'll do the next thing. So... Again, it's very cursory. So, God and Islam. Um, now, I put these verses up here. These are verses from the Quran. So, in the Quran, when is the way I put it up here, if it says Q, that means from the Quran. 59 means chapter 59. And then verses 22 through 24 in the chapter. So, if you want to go look it up later, chapter 59, 22 to 24. Um, if I give the name of, of the chapters, it tends to be confusing. So, I just put the numbers. So, he is God, there is no God but he. He is the knower of the unseen and the visible. He is the all-merciful, the all-compassionate. He is God. There is no God but he. He is the king, the all-holy, the all-peaceable, all-faithful, all-preserver, the almighty, all-compeller, all-sublime. Glory be to God above that the glory be to God above that they associate. He is God, the creator, the maker, the shaper. To him belong the names most beautiful. All that is in the heavens and the earth magnifies him. He is the almighty, the all-wise. So I want you to keep this in mind. I'll probably switch back to this, but just the way this, these verses talk about who God is. So lots of characteristics, lots of superlatives. <clears throat> so in the Muslim tradition, the concept for God is called Tawheed, or oneness. So, in Arabic is a language that uh, almost every word is based off of a root that has three letters. So, Tawheed comes from the root Wahid, which means one. It, so, Tawheed literally means to make one. So, the concept of God, the doctrine is oneness, or making oneness. So the idea of associating anything with God is taboo. God is one. Period. That's it. So the concept of the Trinity would be anathema within this conception of God. Because God would not be one. God would be three in one. That makes no sense. I can't tell you how many taxi cabs I've gone into. And I tell them they're Christian. The taxi cab driver will be like, this is three. This is one. You believe in three gods. We believe in one God. Right, this is how kind of many Muslims conceive of the, the idea of the Trinity. Because we say three and one, it's confusing. So, God is wholly indivisible, wholly unique, right? and nothing can be associated with God. And I find this really well encompassed in the phrase, Allahu Akbar. So, Akbar is a superlative. Generally, it means greater, it means greater than. So, if I said... If I said to you, I like cheese better than, your brain, would, your brain would want something after that word then, right? Better than what? So Allahu Akbar is kind of saying, God is greater than anything you put after that word. Whatever you put after that word, God is greater than that. Doesn't matter what you put there. 
So this is kind of a nice way to think about, okay, this is kind of a way of how Muslims think about God. God is greater than anything in the world, any concept, any idea, any movement, any person. God is greater than that. But this doesn't mean that God is wholly separate, transcendent, and unreachable. So another section of the Quran, right, chapter 50, verse 16. We indeed created man. We know what is what his soul whispers within him, and we are nearer to him than the jugular vein. So in the Muslim tradition, the idea is that God intimately knows all the things God has created. Because God created humans, God knows all the thoughts of humans. God is closer to us than our jugular veins. So there is this tension between God as wholly unique and God also being wholly intimate and knowledgeable of you. So main concepts we see of God, particularly from the Quran, um, God as creator. So God creates all things. Everything is created by God. The only thing that's not created by God is God. God is the only uncreated being. That's it. God is the giver of guidance. And so in Muslim piety, a goal is to develop a concept called taqwa, or God, God consciousness, God awareness, God piety. So God gives guidance to people so that people can develop piety. In the Christian tradition, we tend to, uh, our narrative says the problem in the world is sin. Sin corrupts the world, sin corrupts the soul, and the solution, the resolution to the, the problem of sin is the life and work of Jesus Christ, death and his death and atonement and resurrection. But in the Muslim tradition, the problem is not sin per se, it's ignorance. Ignorance leads people to sin. So when people forget God, they then sin. So the resolution to ignorance is guidance. So what does God do? God gives guidance in the form of revelation. So the Quran, in the Muslim tradition, is the latest version of this guidance. Previously, there was the Gospels. Previously, there was the Torah. But each tradition went the wrong way. So God had to send another one to correct them. So the problem is ignorance, and God is the giver of guidance. God is judge. So the worst unforgivable sin is shirk, which means to share or to associate. Because this violates the fundamental doctrine of tawhid, or God's oneness. So to associate something as equal to God is shirk. Like Jesus being divine or the Trinity. In the Muslim imagination, that is easily seen as shirk. Associating with God, and that is forbidden. That is a non-starter. But underlying all of this is God is merciful. The most frequently used phrase in the Quran regarding to God is Bismillah rahman rahim In the name of God, the most merciful and the most gracious. It doesn't say that. The name of God, the most merciful, the most gracious. When Muslims, pious Muslims, before they pray, they will say Bismillah rahman rahim In the name of the God, the most merciful, the most gracious. And then they eat. Uh, Many times, before, before a Muslim does any type of action, uh, particularly a speech, or when I was in middle school, when we were on the volleyball team, my friend who was Muslim before he served the volleyball, he would say, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, didn't necessarily help him not avoid the net, but you know, 
His intentions were right. Uh, <laughs> but just to show the idea that like the, the most commonly used phrase is God is mercy. God is mercy. God is mercy. So underlying this is God is a merciful God. <clears throat> I told you we're going really fast. So that's the end of, that's the end of my discussion about God. <laughs> so Prophet Muhammad. This is going to be really fast. <clears throat> but before we talk about the Prophet Muhammad, it's important to talk about the context in which the Prophet Muhammad lived. So this is 6th century CE, or AD, whatever, same difference, um, in the Near East. So the purple up there is the Byzantine Empire. So by this time, the Roman Empire has fallen. The leftover of the Roman Empire was the Byzantine Empire. That Byzantine Empire had expanded. It's a Christian empire. The orange are the Sasanian Empire. The Sasanian Empire is a Zoroastrian empire. Zoroastrianism believes in two gods, the god of light and the god of darkness, and they're eternally fighting with each other, and Zoroastrians feed the god of light with good acts, good thoughts, and good deeds to overpower the god of darkness. So they believe in kind of two beings. Um, Freddie Mercury's family is Zoroastrian from Queen. So his family is Zoroastrian. Um, if you've ever seen the movie the biopic of Freddie Mercury. It actually has little bits of his Zoroastrian faith strewn throughout that movie. So go watch it again, and you'll, you'll be able to pick it up. Um, so there are these two large empires with two large religious traditions. Now, I don't know if you can see there, but we're, so in where it says Arabia, the Prophet Muhammad lived in the Arabian Peninsula but particularly on the western coast of the Arabian Peninsula. So on the western coast on that map, there are two cities in particular I want to draw your attention to. The first is Mecca. Can you all see them? Okay, good. Yeah, oh, yeah, you can. All right, Mecca. The second is Medina, just north of Mecca. So most majority of the Prophet Muhammad's life happens in Mecca. A significant part of Muhammad's prophetic career also happens in Medina. Now, Mecca is on a trade route between India. So if you go all the way down Mecca to Yemen, and you go east, you're going to hit India. So there would be boats that would come from India, land in Yemen, go up through Mecca into the Byzantine Empire. So Mecca was on a trade route. So the people that lived in that region were not in a backwater place and never talked to anybody. Now, it was in Constantinople either. So it was this kind of trading area. You'd have traders go down to Yemen, go up to the Damascus and the Byzantine Empire. There were some Christians and some Jews, mostly kind of polytheistic Arab tribes. So kind of overall, it's a situation where you have a little bit of religious diversity, a little bit of trading diversity, a little bit of cultural diversity. Um, not a large cosmopolitan city. So that's kind of the context in the setting. So the Prophet Muhammad is from a tribe called the tribe of Hashem. Now, this is important because there are currently two countries whose kings claim to be descendants of the Prophet Muhammad, the king of Jordan and the king of Morocco. So the name of those countries are actually not Morocco and Jordan. They are the Hashemite kingdom of Morocco and the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. And the reason they put those titles is the rulers claim to be descendants of the Prophet Muhammad of the tribe of Hashem. So it is a Hashemite kingdom. So it has a special authority given to the kings because of their lineage being traced back to the Prophet Muhammad's tribe. So the tribe of Hashem 
within the larger tribe of Quraysh. So Quraysh is the larger tribe, and Hashem is the smaller tribe. It's kind of like the tribe of Benjamin in the larger tri 12 tribes of Israel. So you have Israel, within Israel, you have 12 tribes. Benjamin's a little one. Dan is also a little one, but kind of like that. So according to the Muslim tradition, the prophet Muhammad is a traitor. So he's in Mecca. Um, the Muslim tradition believes he was born in around the year 570 CE. Now, most of this information, we do not have actual hard data because no one's writing books about the Prophet Muhammad in the desert during this time. So we don't have hard data. This is what the Muslim tradition generally believes about the Prophet Muhammad. So around the year 570 CE, Muslims believe the Prophet Muhammad was born. About the age of 30, he becomes a traitor, so he's gone up to Damascus in Yemen, marries a woman named Khadija, who is actually the owner of the caravan company that he works in. Um, so she's a widowed uh, owner of a trading company. Um, and Muslims believe that during this time, the Prophet Muhammad was a very pious and very honor-worthy uh, honor person. His nickname was Al-Amin, or the trustworthy one. And so Muslims believe that even before his prophetic career, he was someone that was well-known and um, worthy of the prophetic mantle that he inherits. So uh, one of the things that the Prophet Muhammad would do is he would go to the caves that are surrounding the city of Mecca, and he would pray and meditate in these caves. And Muslims believe one evening in the year 610 CE that the Prophet Muhammad was visited by an angel uh, specifically the angel Gabriel, and that the angel Gabriel kind of incited revelation to come out of Muhammad almost unwillingly. And the reason I say this is Muslims believe the prophet Muhammad was illiterate, and so that the revelations that came out of the prophet were something that God gave him, that came out of him, not something that he created or made up. And so his prophetic career goes from 610 to 632, which is the year he dies. So he has about a 22-year prophetic career. So 570 to 610, not a prophet. 610, 632, prophet. Now that period of 610 to 632 is divided into two periods. So one period, from 610 to 622, he's in Mecca. So in Mecca, the Muslim tradition generally believes. Most of the verses that were given this time are the ones that talk about um, the theology of God, um, the relationship between Christians and Muslims and Jews, many of the stories that we find in the Quran about Jesus. There's a whole chapter on uh, the Virgin Mary. It's actually called the chapter of Mary. Uh, there's another chapter called the chapter of Joseph. So there's a whole chapter on Joseph as well, that these were all revealed during the time of Mecca. However, he was persecuted while he was in Mecca because the Quraysh, the Quraysh are the big, large tribe, they run the city of Mecca. And in Mecca, there is this large shrine in which the polytheistic Arab tribes place their idols. So, because the idols are in the shrine, Mecca was a city where war didn't happen because they didn't want to fight around their gods. Now, when you have a stable area of peace, it makes for good trade. So Mecca became a trading center because there wasn't going to be war. There wasn't going to be a lot of fighting. But now here comes this guy, Muhammad, that says all these, guys, all these gods are false. And that threatens the economic system of the Quraysh tribe. It threatens this, the leadership. And so they start persecuting him. Eventually, 
they do threaten to murder him, and he, he and his followers flee to a city called Medina. Well, it's called Yathrib. It gets changed to Medina. So today it's called Medina, which literally just means the city. So like San Francisco's the city, kind of like that. This is a thing that worked when I was in California. <laughs> um, so now it's just called the city. So he flees to the city, and the year 622 is when Muslims mark the first year of the Muslim calendar. So this, this flight from Mecca to Medina forced Muhammad's followers to choose whether or not to stay with their tribes or to join a new community. So Muslims mark 622 as the inauguration of the new Muslim community. So roughly, it's based on the lunar calendar, so it's not exactly the same as ours. But if you take our calendar and subtract 622 years and a little extra, you roughly get the year of the Islamic calendar. But because it's lunar, it's shorter by about two and a half weeks, I think. So every year, it's just a little bit shorter. Now, between uh, 622 and 632, the Quraysh weren't satisfied to leave Muhammad up in Medina. There were a series of battles between the two of them. Eventually, Muhammad gathers lots of the Arab tribes together, and he retakes Mecca, going to the Kaaba and cleansing the Kaaba of all of the idols. Um, renewing it for monotheistic worship. He then does his last pilgrimage to Mecca in the year 632, during which time he gives a farewell speech. And in his farewell speech, he declares the oneness of all Muslims, establishing a concept that still runs today called the Ummah. So Muslims see themselves as the Ummah, that no matter where you are, by virtue of being a Muslim, you are a participant in the Ummah the worldwide Muslim community. Okay. Yeah, it's fast. That's all I have from Prophet Muhammad. <laughs> all right. Quran and Hadith. So the Quran is revelation put into text form. So as long as the Prophet Muhammad was alive, the Quran could never be fully compiled because revelation could still happen. So the text could only be compiled after he died. So 632 marks the first time in which the text could actually be compiled because there would be no new revelations coming out. So from six, the Muslim tradition holds from 632 until the year 650. Muslims were compiling and had different fragments of the Quran, but they hold in the year 650 that the Quran was compiled and standardized. We do have a number of fragments dating from the 7th century that are contemporaneous, and they're pretty much the same as the Quran we have today. So we feel fairly certain that an Arabic Quran today is very close or similar to an Arabic Quran from 650. Now, what happened between 650 and before that, we're not 100% sure, because we don't have those. But, um, now, the Quran is only in Arabic. So if you read a Quran in English, it should say, a translation of the Quran, or the Quran interpreted, or something like that. Because the revelation given was in Arabic. And so Muslims believe that those Arabic words are the words that God specifically chose for God's revelation. So the Quran, capital T, capital Q, is only in Arabic. So if you tell a Muslim, I've read the Quran, they'll say, oh, you read Arabic. If you say, oh, I don't, then they say, you haven't read the Quran. Right, you've read a translation of the Quran or interpretation of the Quran, but you haven't read the actual thing. Now, the Quran is rhythmic in its composition. 
It's like poetry. So it's actually quite easy to memorize. There are kids who are as young as 10 who've memorized the entire Quran. Uh, there's a great YouTube video called The Quran by Heart. And it's about a Quranic uh, memorization competition of kids. I think they're between the ages of 10 and 16. And they'll sit them down and they'll give them like three words. And then they have to either finish the chapter or they give them three words at the beginning and say, end at this verse here. So it'd be like me sitting down and saying, go from Romans 1, 16 to 10, 3, go. And then just do it like that. So it's, it's quite easy to memorize again because it has this kind of poetic quality to it. We're, generally, it's compiled longest to shortest, but not always longest to shortest. So just generally. There's some chapters that are longer that are after shorter chapters. It's just generally longest to shortest. It is not a narrative. So if you pick it up and read it, it might not make a lot of sense. This is generally why I don't recommend reading the Quran, because it doesn't make a lot of sense by itself. Also, that's not how Muslims read the Quran. The Quran is a text of worship. It's not a text of data. The data of the Quran is interpreted through the hadith, which we'll talk about in a minute. So, unlike Protestants, Muslims don't just pick up the Quran and read it like Quranic studies. So, they interact with their sacred text very differently than how we interact with the sacred text. Um, it's, a, it's a text of piety, a text of worship, and a text of devotion in that sense. <clears throat> so, major themes in the Quran. Um, I, will, I will just put these up here. I'll elaborate on each of them. So, the Quran talks about God. Ah. So, the verse I had before came from the Quran, right? There, there is a God. There is one God. This God has a bunch of attributes. The Quran has 99 different attributes given to God. So, remember that verse said all, all, all knowing, all merciful, all sublime, right? All something. There are 99 different superlatives in the Quran for God. If you've ever seen a usually Muslim man and they have these beads and they kind of move these beads through their hands, they're a type of rosary, if you call it. And the beads, it'll have 30, it'll have 11 beads and then like a, a division, 11, a division, and 11. So that's 33. So they go through three times. Each bead, they'll recite one of the names of God. So it's kind of a, like a tactile memorization tool to remember the 99 names of God, and they'll sit there and they'll go through them with the 99 names of God. Um, the Quran is also concerned with humans as individuals. So in the Muslim tradition, humans are responsible to God individually for their righteousness or their sinfulness. Judgment is not based on a community. Judgment is based off of individuals. So this is why the idea of universal sin or universal atonement by the act of one person doesn't really correlate with the Quranic plausibility structure. So I'm bringing in our earlier class to today. But the Quran also sees humans as society, as society as a whole. So it does talk about the ummah, the universal community of Muslims, or the universal community of believers, or the universal community of idolaters. And so it's very concerned with building a righteous community of faith over and against a community that it sees as ignorant and sinful. In the Quran, nature is Muslim. So to be Muslim means to submit to God. Nature itself is not fallen nature, because nature always does the will of God. So in the Quran, nature is Muslim. It always does the will of God. 
And so the Quran, like the Psalms, will frequently point to nature as evidence of God's oneness, God's power, God's creativity, God's mercy, God's guidance. <clears throat> and so a lot of metaphors or analogies to nature in the Quran. The Quran gives, gives its own veracity for the authority of its prophecy and revelation. It talks about the prophet Muhammad as a prophet that's being chosen for this special case and purpose. But it also talks about other prophets. So in the Quran, Jesus is a prophet. Noah is a prophet. Moses is a prophet. Joseph is a prophet. So there are many biblical figures that figure into the Quran as prophets. It does have two other figures that are Arabian prophets that it mentions as prophets that are not in the biblical text. Um, the Muslim tradition believes that there were 144,000 prophets in total. Not all of them are named. The Quran is very concerned also with end times or eschatology. What happens at the, end of, at the end of time? What happens on the judgment day? What happens to people after they die? There's a lot of literature on that. The Quran talks about Satan or evil. That's a little bit different. So there are a couple different words that are used. So there's a character called Iblis that is frequently mentioned in the Genesis story. So in the Genesis story, the character is Iblis. Later on in the text, you'll find a character named Shaitan or Satan. But also we'll talk about Shayatin or Satans, the plural of Satan, Satans. There's also a third figure, uh, jinns. So jinn, where we get the English word genie, are fire creatures that aren't angels or demons or people. The best analogy, and this works with my students because they've seen these movies. You may not have. The Minion movies or like Despicable Me. There's like little yellow figures. They're, so jinns are like that, which means they're generally predisposed to mischievous evil, but can sometimes be good. That's a jinn. <laughs> so not inherently evil, but left to their own devices, they're mischievous and do bad things. But they can be good sometimes. That's kind of a gem. Um, and finally, the Quran claims to be universal in scope. Right? So the claim of the Quran is that it is a text for everybody. Not just a text for the Muslims. It's a text for every person in the world, you and me included. Just like Christians, we believe the Bible is a text for everybody in the world, Muslims included. <laughs> now, the Quran itself, for many Muslims, is a very powerful text. And so the Quran will adorn buildings frequently. So Islamic art generally averes physical representations of people. It doesn't always. There's, much, there's a lot of Islamic art that has physical representations of people. However, when you go to the Alhambra in Spain, Dome of the Rock, many Islamic structures, they will decorate the structures with verses from the Quran. If you go to a Muslim household, frequently art on the wall will be embellishments of Quranic verses done in very wonderful calligraphic forms. So calligraphy, there's a lot of different forms of calligraphy in Islamic art uh, because it's this meditation on the text as beauty. And so to beautify the text. Muslims believe that, uh, many Muslim societies believe the Quran has healing powers. And so you'll find frequently when a baby is born, when people are sick, when people are dying, um, when, people, when, people, when Muslims believe other people are possessed by demons, they will recite the Quran because they believe it has power over health and over the soul. 
They believe it has power of conversion. There's a very famous story in the Muslim tradition. There is this guy named Omar ibn al-Khattab, who ended up being the second leader of the Muslim community after Muhammad died, who was really bent on destroying the Muslim community until one day he heard the verses of the Quran being recited. The power of the Quran transformed his heart and then he went and gave his allegiance to the Prophet Muhammad. So Muslims believe just that the hearing of the Quran has a transformative power. Um, and you see this especially because, as we'll talk about later, Muslim diversity. Many, many Muslims don't know Arabic. The largest country, Muslim country in the world is Indonesia. Most of them don't know Arabic. So for them, hearing the Quran is not about understanding the text. It's about being transformed by the power of the sound of the text. So it's not necessarily an intellectual exercise, but rather it's a worshipful exercise with the text. So that's why I say just sitting and reading the text is not a which is what we as Protestants tend to do, doesn't quite equate to how Muslims engage with the sacred text. And finally, of course, prayer. And the five daily prayers we'll talk about later. Each one of these prayers, Muslims recite verses of the Quran in those prayers. So Muslims need to memorize sections of the Quran just to pray. Now, you might ask, how do people in Indonesia who don't know Arabic recite the Quran in Arabic if that's what they need to pray? They memorize the sounds in Arabic. Right, so for, here's a, like an example. Um, when I was in 10th grade, I had to memorize the beginning of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales in Middle English. Why? I don't know. I still remember it. I don't know what it says. Like, I still remember the sounds of Wanda Rapa with the Shora Sota, the Dracht of Marcha, Perst, the Rota. I, I can't translate that for you. But I remember the sounds of all of it. <laughs> and so for in, Muslims in Indonesia, they will memorize the sounds. They will say it. And that is fulfill, fulfilling their duties but they may not understand what they're saying. So here's an example of kind of the artistic use of the Quran. So this is a section of the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. So you can see the, the beautiful blues on the very top. Right? These are verses of the Quran done in calligraphic form to beautify the structure. <clears throat> The other sacred texts are called hadith. And these are more important in some ways than the Quran. The hadith, so hadith literally means like uh, news or event. So hadiths are the collected sayings and actions of the Prophet Muhammad's sunnah, or the way he did things. So if every morning when you wake up, you brush your teeth like our dentists want us to do, then your sunnah is that you brush your teeth in the morning. That's your sunnah. Um, if you're, if you are somebody who likes, um, oh, when you cut your sandwiches, there are people who cut it diagonally and people who cut it like vertically. That's your sunnah. If you're a diagonal cutter, your sunnah is your diagonal sandwich cutter. If you cut it vertically, your sunnah is your vertical sandwich cutter. And so for Muslims, they were very interested in what did the Prophet Muhammad do? Because the Quran doesn't tell them a lot of what to do as Muslims. It actually doesn't have a lot in there with regards to practice and piety. It actually doesn't give the five pillars of Islam in the Quran. It's not in there. But the Quran tells the Muslims to follow Muhammad. It says, whosoever obeys God and the messenger, they are with those whom God has blessed. Prophets, the just men, martyrs, the righteous, good companions are they. So obey God and the messenger. So how do you obey the messenger? You figure out what he did and follow what he did. 
And there are other verses in the Quran that say Muhammad is an excellent example. He's the best of amongst you, etc., etc. So positing Muhammad as a supreme ethical character for Muslims to follow. But the question is, okay, how do you make sure that the story you're hearing is in fact a story that was actually about the Prophet Muhammad. Because these stories are written down in the 9th century. The Prophet Muhammad dies in the 7th century. So how do you qualify a game of telephone that has gone on for 200 years? Right? So I told you, and you told someone else, and you told someone else, and you told someone else. Well, if you ever play telephone, you know frequently that gets messed up. <laughs> So, they developed what's called the science of hadith. The science of ascertaining which hadiths are strong and which hadiths are weak. So, they would go through, and in, in a hadith, so I'll show you what a hadith looks like. So, in a hadith, you'd have first the telephone chain. Now, I've really foreshortened this. But this is the, the last person in the chain is this guy named Abu Huraira. So Abu Huraira was a companion of the Prophet Muhammad. But if you went back, it would say, on the authority of Abu Huraira. And before that, it would say, on the authority of this person. And on the authority of this person. So on the authority of someone, on the authority of someone, on the authority of someone, and someone, and someone, da 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 da, -da On the authority of Abu Huraira, the Prophet Muhammad said this. And then they developed this elaborate literature of biographies of every single person in those chains of narration. So you could say, Abu Huraira, look him up. Now, if he was a well-known liar, then if, if Abu Huraira was a liar, then you see him in the chain and you'd go, that's not going to be good. But if Abu Huraira is righteous and he's well-known and virtuous, da, 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 then okay, this might be trustworthy. And you do it for every person in the chain. So that's one of the markers. The other one is, the thing that's being said in the narration can't overturn the Qur'an. So it can't be like Abu Huraira said, you should believe in the Trinity. Like that, they were like, okay, that clearly disagrees with the Qur'an. So that's also a weak hadith. So the story has to correlate with the Qur'an and the chain of narration has to be strong. So most debates between Muslims over what, what, what they should believe are really not debates over Qur'an, they're debates over hadith. And someone's saying, well, this hadith is this, this, this. And someone's saying, no, that's weak. This hadith, da, da, da. and that person's like, well, that's weak. And it, that's usually how debates happen. So it's mostly over hadith, not the Quran. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of these hadiths. So it's really whatever the hadiths a particular community thinks are the ones that are attractive to them. <laughs> so this is why I say when trying to understand Muslims, reading the Quran is not going to get you to understand Muslims. You understand a little bit, but a lot of it comes from hadith. So here's an example. A prayer performed by someone who has not recited the foundation of the Quran, the first chapter, the Fatiha, during it is deficient or incomplete. So because this is a hadith, this is considered a strong hadith, every Muslim, when they begin their prayer, they recite the Fatiha, the very beginning, the first chapter of the Quran. Why? Because it says it here. Doesn't say in the Quran, it says here to do it. So when Muslims, when they pray, they start by saying the first chapter of the Quran. All 12, 8, 8 to 12, something like that. Anyways, yeah, there's only 8 or 12 verses from this. Okay. So, in theory, right, the highest authority text is the Quran. 
The next authority is the hadith, and the final authority is the community. So you have a question, you go to the Quran. The Quran doesn't answer it, so you go to the hadith. There's nothing really there, so I'll go to the community and figure it out. But in practice, it goes the other way around because it's the community that decides which hadiths they think are important, and it's the hadiths that interpret all the gaps that are in the Quran. So in practice, it goes the other way instead of this way, which interestingly is actually how most traditions are. <laughs> right? We ourselves do that with our own text. We have the scripture as text, but we read the scripture through our creeds and doctrines, and who decides that? The church or the community does. Right? So as Reformed, we have numerous confessions in the Nicene Creed. So we, we, we as a church are like, these are the creeds, and these are the creeds that decide the Trinity is in Scripture, and Jesus is incarnate in God, and fully God, and fully man, etc., etc., etc. So this is not as foreign to our tradition. Or really any tradition. Okay, Muslim practice. Oof. All right. The five pillars of Islam. So these are the five things Muslims do generally throughout their lives. One, prayer. Oh, sorry, not one prayer. So one is the profession of faith, the shahada. I, there is no God but God, and Muhammad is the messenger of God or the prophet of God. It's to say prophet or messenger. Messenger, good. So this is the statement of faith. To become a Muslim is to say this with sincerity in your heart, to truly believe it before other Muslims. That's it. There's, there's no like baptism ceremony or anything like that. That's pretty much it. Muslims will say this frequently throughout the day. The call to prayer, Muslims call to prayer. They will say this during the call to prayer. Um, so, statement of faith. Second is prayer, salah. There are five, there's five times a day that Muslims should pray. And there are periods of time. So the morning prayer doesn't mean you pray at the morning. Now many Muslims do, but it's really you have from morning till midday to pray those prayers. So it's really like a block of time. And then you have from, mid, from noon to midday to do the next block. So there are five blocks in the day of prayer to pray. Um, Shiite Muslims have condensed two of them, so they actually have three blocks of prayer time. So Shiite Muslims have three blocks. Sunni Muslims, which are the majority, 85% of Muslims, um, will have uh, five blocks. Shiite Muslims generally, generally are from Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, um, Yemen, uh, some from Pakistan as well. Uh, zakat or giving alms to the poor. Um, so frequently during the month of Ramadan or fasting, you'll have a uh, high season of donating, so zakat funds. Giving funds to the poor, to the Red Crescent. Not the Red Cross, it's the Red Crescent. Giving money to the Red Crescent for the poor. So giving alms is also uh, mandatory. Doing hajj. So hajj is a pilgrimage to Mecca with a series of prescribed actions and events during a specific time of year. So hajj happens during a specific time of year. You can go on pilgrimage in Mecca. That's called Umrah, and that's good, but it doesn't count as hajj. Hajj is specific time of year. We're about like two to four million people descend on, on Mecca at one point in time. And you only do this if you are financially able to do so and physically able to do so. So if you are poor and a Muslim and can't do it, it's not obligatory for you. It's something that you have to do if you can do it. Now, also remember, back in the day, this was also a very dangerous venture. Like, imagine you're in Morocco and you had to traverse North Africa and get to Mecca. You could die on the way there. So this was 
you know, once in your lifetime was enough because that was a very dangerous venture to do. Now we just hop on a plane and it's no big deal. Um, last is fasting during the month of Ramadan. So there is one lunar month, Ramadan. This year it's like Marchish. Um, Muslims do not take anything into their body from sunup to sundown, which is easier in the winter months and harder in the summer months. Now, if you're in a place like Alaska, then you go to the clock of Mecca. So like, let's say you're in Alaska, and it's winter, and you know, the sun is only up for like an hour. Then you're like, yeah, hey, it's easy. I don't have to do anything. It's just one hour. <laughs> They'll say you have to follow sunup, sundown time of Mecca instead of Alaska. Also the inverse. If it's summer, sun never goes down, you'll die. So <laughs> that's also not good. You follow, they'll generally say follow Mecca. Um, the two main holidays are at the end of the month of Hajj and the end of the month of Ramadan. So these are called Eid. So uh, Eid al-Fitr is kind of the Christmas one, if you will. There's lights and presents and food and da-da-da. And Eid al-Adha is the one at the end of Hajj, the sacrifice of a goat. Um, it's really not as popularized. So if you do see celebrations, usually the one at the end of Ramadan. Six articles of faith. So six things Muslims believe in. Now, the five pillars and the six articles come from hadiths. There's a hadith that relates these. So you believe in what? So six things all Muslims believe. Belief in God. You believe that there are angels. You believe that this God has sent revelation in the form of holy books. You believe these holy books came from prophets. You believe that God will judge people on the last day and there will be an afterlife. And you believe that God is sovereign over all things. Six things. That's about it. Like that's, that's the basics of being a Muslim. Okay. I talk about this. I think I have only like a few more slides. But <laughs> all right. So Sharia. Um, Sharia literally means road or way. So if you ask me, where do you live? I would say, I live on Sharia and then say my street name. Because it means street or road or path. So literally it's the path, and conceptualize the path God wants you to walk down. The Jewish tradition has something similar. In the Jewish tradition is halakha. Halakha in the Jewish tradition is also the path God wants you to walk down. So it's not Jewish law. It's not Islamic law. It's the Jewish or Islamic way that God wants you to be. That's Sharia or Halakha. That's the idea. Now, how do you actually do that? Well, then you have to actually make prescriptions and da-da-da, and that's the law part. But the concept writ large is, what is the path I should walk down? What does that look like? So Sharia is belief. You should have right belief, which is called Aqidah. You should have then you have the practical rulings. Okay, well, what should I do in this situation? You know, what's good and what's ethical or not? And then you have general ethics or akhlaq. So all these three together make up sharia. Beliefs, ethics, and practice. All that together, sharia. <clears throat> now, to answer these questions, Muslims will go to the Quran. If that's silent, they go to hadith. If that's silent, they look at precedent. Did, did someone make this ruling beforehand? And if that's silent, then they will use their own reasoning to try to figure something out. So here's an example. Um, the Quran doesn't forbid alcohol. It forbids khamar, which is a specific type of fermented grape, grape juice to make wine or dates to make wine, khamar. But what about marijuana? What about beer? Are those, is beer forbidden or is marijuana forbidden? Well, does, the Quran doesn't say that specifically, 
the hadith, it's kind of eh. So we have to use our reasoning. Okay, well, why is it forbidden? Well, in the verse it says it's forbidden because it makes you intoxicated. Okay, so the reason it's forbidden is because it causes intoxication. So then things that cause intoxication should be forbidden. So from that reasoning, then beer is forbidden because it causes intoxication, and marijuana is forbidden because it causes intoxication. In fact, there are a few points in time that coffee was forbidden because there was some debate over whether or not it causes intoxication. If you've had six cups of coffee, you know that's a valid debate. So, but that, that's kind of the idea of legal reasoning, right? You try to use human reasoning to figure out, okay, why is this ruling here and how do we apply it to daily life? And from that, there are five levels. Things that you must do, like pray. You have to pray. It's not optional. Things that you should do, right? Um, taking care of, take, uh, visiting people in prison. It's not obligatory, but it's good. You should do that. Things that are permissible, buying a house. If it's not good or evil, you just buy a house. Good. Things that are disliked, like swearing. You shouldn't do that. Things that are forbidden, like murder. Don't do that. So generally, there's kind of five categories. And the whole goal of this is to protect what are called the, the goals or intentions of Sharia, which is the protection of life, intellect, progeny, um, religion, and property. So the goal of Sharia is to protect these five things. So you have many Muslim scholars today in the United States, they're like... They would say, and this many um, bunch of professor friends of mine, they're like, the Constitution is Sharia. Why? It protects these five things. Does it? It's Sharia. It protects these five things. We're okay with it. Because it does it. We're fine. The problem is if in their society that doesn't protect these things, then they'd have an issue. <clears throat> okay. I just want to show you the diversity of the Muslim tradition. So I'm going to go by color. So on top it says Islam. Then if you go down, that orange color are the Sunnis. The Sunnis are kind of generally one group, and they, they just differ based on which Sharia school they follow. They're different schools of thought in Sharia, different ways of thinking. So like even the United States with constitutional law, we have different ways of thinking about legal constitutional law. Right? We have originalists and progressivists and different ways of thinking about it. So same here. You have Sunnis. They just differ on the way they think about it. Now with Shiites, that's the green. Oh, thank you. Shiites, which are the green, they are distinct. They are distinct sects that do not mingle. So you have the Ismailis, who still are here today. They still they still have a leader called the Aga Khan. Um, they are distinct from what are called the Jafaris, who are distinct from the Zaydis. So all of these groups and all the subgroups underneath, these are all distinctly different Shiite groups that have broken apart over the last 1,200 or so years. Um, and the last one are these, this last one are called the Ibadiyas, who are in Oman. So Oman are actually this group. They're a totally different group, the Omani Muslims. So just going back to the original chart, just again to kind of show you the diversity of the Muslim tradition, um, down here in the corner in the blue, it says Sufis. Sufis transverse all of them. So Sufis are like charismatics in Christianity. So you can have charismatic Catholics, charismatic Baptists, charismatic, kind of an oxymoron, charismatic Presbyterians, 
right? <laughs> but um, being charismatic is not a denomination in and of itself. It's just a way of being. So Sufism is a way of being Muslim. As one of my professors would say, it's the extra credit of Islam. It's like the extra stuff. Um, okay, so here's a map on concentration of Muslims. So this is just percentage of the local population. So you can see mainly we're talking about Muslims. We're talking about Middle East, Central Asia, North Africa, and Southeast Asia. So this is just percentage of that local population. But this can be misleading because this map shows you the, the countries by population. So the largest Muslim country is Indonesia. The second is Pakistan. The third largest country is India where Muslims are a minority. There are over 200 million Muslims in India, which is like two-thirds the American population. And they're a minority. <laughs> this shows you how many, how many people are in India. Right, then Bangladesh, and then like Egypt and Nigeria are super close. Right, so if, if, it's, if it's Nigeria, that's sub-Saharan Africa, and Egypt, technically Middle East, North Africa. But the top four countries, are not, they're not Arabs. So when we're talking about Islam and Muslims, we're talking about people who aren't Arabs. Right? Majority of Muslims in the world aren't Arabs. They're from Southeast Asia. They're from subcontinental sub Africa. Yeah, they're from also Middle East, but they're also from Iran or Persian or Turkey or Turkish, right? Those also aren't Arabs. Okay, reflection time. Finally got to it. All right. So, two major questions, right? How does understanding the Muslim tradition help us understand our Muslim friends and neighbors? So, how does it help us understand? All right, so being able to engage with someone who's Muslim and understand how that person treats the Quranic texts. Right, to understand how holy it is for them. To understand how, if I'm talking about Jesus, it might come off as shirk to my Muslim friend. And that accidentally can be a barrier between us. Or how, when my Muslim friend is fasting, I can be loving to them and cook them a meal and bring them to their home so that when they break fast, they don't have to worry about cooking. All right, so understanding what my Muslim friends or neighbors are going through and how they practice their daily practices. But how does it help us understand our own faith and practice? Um, I'm going to skip this. Get to our own faith and practice. So, the importance of prayer. Muslims pray five times a day. I have a very good friend, when he was doing his doctorate degree, would sit in Starbucks, and when prayer time happened, he would take out his prayer rug, roll it out on the floor, and pray right there in a Starbucks. Get up and sit back down and type on his computer. Which was very, very impressive to me. I mean, many times Christians are afraid to pray over meals in a restaurant. It's like, okay, we're all together. Normally pray at home. We're at a restaurant, so we're just going to eat now. Because if we do like this and I'll pray together out loud, it might look weird. Meanwhile, my friend's just like, I'm praying. Why? Because God is real. <laughs> and there's something I really appreciate about that. And the number of times he prays a day. Right? Praying five times. That's a one, just stopping and saying a quick prayer many times a day. I think there are many things to admire about that. And the importance of sacred text. I, I joke to my students that they just throw their Bibles in their backpacks and they get tossed up and beat up and they have to buy a new one. Or now some of them have these like steel cases that they put in to like protect it. But for a Muslim, that, they would never do that. This is a sacred text, right? And if we believe that the Bible is the word of God, revelation given to us, we should treat it a little better. We should, it's a little bit more sacred. Like this idea of I, 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 
this is another reason I, I, I like the Anglican tradition and this, but I say the smells and bells, right? The sacredness of the text, right? The importance of this text. This is not just a, a book that we open to study like I study my biology book, right? It has a certain holiness about it that's very important that the Muslim tradition has in their text that I find that I can learn from my Muslim friends and neighbors. And finally, the importance of tradition, right? So talking about hadith and community kind of helps us reflect and realize, oh yeah, we also do that with our own tradition. And it helps me be a little more humble when I engage with Christians of other traditions to say, okay, I'm in this tradition and you're in that tradition. And I understand how we maybe read the text a little differently, but I'm not threatened by that because tradition, it's still important, right? We don't just read the text and it says it's, it's not 100% clear. That's why we have tradition. I mean, Arius with Arianism, which was declared a heresy, Arius thought he was being authentic to the text. And then he was declared a heretic because he said Jesus was created and not the son of God or not the eternal son of God. But he's like, look, it says it here. And the church says, no, it doesn't. So just being, just reading the Bible doesn't get you the Christian tradition. This is why it's a tradition, right? The, the, the authority and the teachings of the apostles from one age to the next. And it really helps me appreciate the importance of tradition and to root ourselves in tradition. So these are all the ways that I think, at least some of the ways, not all the ways, some of the ways I think we can appreciate our own faith as followers of Jesus by engaging with the Muslim tradition. So... Thank you. I know that went a little extra long, um, but... This has been the Loving God Through Loving Neighbor class from Knox Presbyterian Church. To find out more about our missions and ministry, visit us at knoxpres.org. That's K-N-O-X-P-R-E-S dot org. You can join us for worship in person or watch our live streams every Sunday morning. Thanks, and see you next week.